This week's episode is brought to you in part by Private Internet Access. Private Internet Access is the number one VPN, according to Carl Pulling and lots of other people. So check it out and enjoy the show. Hunter, I have a story from the weekend that I need to tell you. Hit me, buddy. So, this this weekend, my, my wife and I, we took a trip down to a coastal city. Yeah. Which one? Nice try. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to dox myself again. Uh, so we we took a trip, and we're it was it was really nice actually. It was it was part of our wedding present. Uh, this couple gave us a stay at a, a nice place down on the coast, and it's a historic building, a historic site. And as we're on the way down there, my wife is researching and reading a little bit about the place, and she right. looks at me and she goes, "Oh my gosh, this is amazing! This the place that we're staying is haunted." And I was like, well, that's not true, but I, sure, okay. <laughs> um, so she starts reading to me about it, and she goes, yeah, so apparently the owner of this house okay. loved to smoke cigars. And she said, sometimes when you're there, you can smell <laughs> the cigar still. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I, I hate to break that to you, but I think that's just... All, that's just smoking indoors, yeah. right? Yeah. Unless, there, uh, I was thinking, uh, there's a possibility that the hallway in my apartment is actually being haunted right now by the ghost of Snoop Dogg. <laughs> but <laughs> probably, probably that just happens when you when you smoke. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Welcome to Carl Pulling. Carl Pulling, the last show on Earth. Uh, the, all the other ones couldn't make it. They didn't survive the gauntlet. This is the last one left. And so, obviously, you have to listen to it. Uh, that's just how that goes. We're a podcast that talks about art, philosophy, science, culture, religion, everything that you're not allowed to talk about at Thanksgiving. We do it right here for you. Listen on loudspeakers at your desk. I guarantee you'll get fired before the end of the week. That's how it works around here. So, we've got a great, a great uh, guest to get to in just one second. Before you unlock the ability to listen to this excellent episode, I need you to do one thing for me right now. Go immediately on your podcasting app of choice and leave a five-star review. If you leave less than that, we know where you live. So leave a five-star review and like the show, rate the show, leave us a review, email us at carlpulling at gmail.com, et cetera, et cetera, ad nauseum. Also, Carl Pooling merch store is live, carlpulling.com slash store. Buy something from the store, support the show. In fact, here, I'll give you a quick audio, an audio presentation of some of our merch right now. I'm holding in my hand. You can't see it because it's an audio-only show. I'm holding a Carl Pulling mug. They're available right now at carlpulling.com slash store. Here you go. Oh, that, that is not okay. That, that's just an audio preview that's, of some of our merchandise. Thank you for that. <laughs> so I hope you enjoyed that. Um, Hunter, anything, anything else, anything I miss before we just get right into this episode? Nah, man, I think you got it. Yeah, let's, let's dive in. Okay, excellent. I was hoping that you would say that because we have an amazing guest joining us this week. In fact, he's the assistant editor at the Claremont Institute. 
He studied Greek and Latin at Yale. He received his PhD at Oxford in the classics. And he's the host of the Young Heretics podcast where he explores the concepts of truth, beauty, and everything that makes Western culture great. It is my great privilege, ladies and gentlemen, to introduce to you Spencer Clavin. Spencer, thank you for joining us on the show. Hundreds. Great to be here. I felt like at the end there you were going to say, like, weighing in at 170 pounds. <laughs> in, in this corner. It's great to be the last guest in the world. Is that, does that, is that how that works? If this is the last podcast, yes. am I the last? Yeah, just all the other, we, we outlived. You Rogan. literally couldn't get anybody else because everybody else didn't survive the zombie apocalypse. It's just well, that, yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> and I don't want that to diminish this interview <laughs> in stature. any way. It's but, just that yeah. there, there were no other options. It's fine. I get it. There might not even be any more listeners. It <laughs> might just be us re-listening to this again and again as, as we slowly waste away. We have to keep our sanity or some shred of it somehow you know, as the, radiator, <laughs> as the right. nuclear radiation right. descends outside if our If you bunker. can't give them hope, give them something to do. I also so, really just before we proceed, I'm sorry to interrupt you again, but I really liked the ASMR presentation of your merchandise. And I, I just wonder, <laughs> like, if you ever do beard care products, are you going to, like, scratch your beard against the microphone and other <laughs> weird, creepy listen, oral stimulation? Listen, you, you might have missed your calling in marketing because that is an idea. I'm that... so sorry, Chris, for giving him ideas. It feels, uh, feels cruel. Yes. Yeah, yeah. This is uh, this is going to be an issue <laughs> shortly uh i think actually now we should do asmr reviews of all of our products i i um, my spine is just so uncomfortable <laughs> right now and <laughs> we're uh we've got we've got uh I, i'm just thinking about that windbreaker can you imagine oh my god we're gonna, people are gonna fall out of their office here. <laughs> um, i have so. a can i confess something really like strange and uh, uncomfortable about myself before we even got into the interview or introduced yes, people to any of my accomplishments perfect. so that yes. before I'm before I have any achievements I'm just a weirdo that uh, nobody quite understands but I have a, like a, a an ASMR fascination not particularly as a like genre of entertainment but just like all the different subcategories and like what's going on psychologically with people so if you ever want to do just a two-hour podcast of like close reads of ASMR videos I'm your guy I <laughs> listen. So I I realized many years after the fact that when I was a kid that I would have an asynchronous meridian response mm-hmm. to people telling me stories or teaching me how to do something. Totally same, it doesn't same happen thing. anymore. Oh. Um I I lost the the dream is dead, but I didn't realize what was happening when it was happening and so now uh I'm I'm interested in it as well. So uh you might you you, you might just take get me taken up, on, up on that. Oh no. Be careful yeah. what you wish for. But I'm actually <laughs> uh, can I confess a dark secret? Yes. I just it's like people time. whispering to me. <laughs> like, it doesn't even make the give you this the tingle down your No, it's down just your spine. Good. It's just you like that. <laughs> Okay, so you would be a good test subject for, like, what psychologically is going. Like, I want to know why. Yeah, yeah, for real, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's a good point. No. That is super interesting, yeah. And I'm assuming that you've experienced it, too, then. Like, it is, it it coats your whole brain in something. It's it's no joke. Oh, no no kidding. I definitely, like, know why people respond to it. But mm-hmm. I also, again, I mean, now here we are just like embarking on this <laughs> sort of psychoanalytic project. But like, I think that surely there are ways besides watching YouTube videos to have that experience. So it speaks to a lack of like intimacy and like people aren't like, because, you, you know, you might 
think that people would just have experiences where people whisper in their ear or like give them head massages or whatever else but like everybody's so alone that we're all just relying on you know like vietnamese ladies to chew <laughs> octopus in our ear or whatever exactly yeah. that's that's what we need we need dr fauci to come in and tell us He's sorry for COVID while doing one of those head massager <laughs> spiny things. Uh, we, we'll, we're going to make it happen. Should we do the rest of the episode whispering? I don't know. Maybe not. Um, but we've got a lot to talk about, and it centers around the fact that, Spencer, you have just come out with a fantastic book. Thank you. How to Save the West, Ancient Wisdom for Five Modern Crises. When you are talking about it, do you usually put the subtitle on it, or do you just say How to Save the West? I do. I put the subtitle on it. And here's one important reason why I've learned in doing interviews about this book that not everybody knows how to pronounce the plural of the word crisis. I, I so knew this was going to be a point with you. Is, I don't know yes, how I'm I knew doing, this, but I knew. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm an insufferable pedant and a dork <laughs> in the extreme. Because, because it, 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 it's like kind of a gateway, you know, it's the first test is can you pronounce the subtitle of it? No, I'm just doing people a public service by sort of, you know, if you didn't know, you're afraid to ask, this is how you say crises. And that's, you know, that way the book has already taught you something before you even enter into it. I, I didn't know I was being tested, but thank God. <laughs> Congratulations. You're in, in a the, vanishingly in high percentile. I'm embarrassed and, and saddened to describe how, what a high percentile that puts you in. That is quite sad <laughs> but i mean for someone like me that's driven driven 90 percent on ego and like seven mm -hmm. percent on nicotine <laughs> that is that's great to know <laughs> all right um so we want to talk about the book i've got a million questions i know that hunter does too there's so many cool uh cool interwoven fibers between what we love to talk about on the show what you wrote about in the book uh we have we have a lot in common Awesome. So I'm I'm really looking forward to that. Before we do, we must engage as is our birthright, Hunter. Yeah. Post haste, make with the roadkill. There are people to lampoon. Yeah. Please take it away. Yeah. Let me handle this. Uh, so the roadkill is where we just make fun of something the left did because it's obnoxious and it's about time. Um, you guys have heard of this crowd called Gen Z, right? And honestly, I don't give them a lot of hope kind of worried about what they're going to do. Uh, and you've probably heard about people putting uh, tampons in men's restrooms because, I don't know, it's kind of sad and dark, but that that's happening. So, well, some Gen Z boys in an Oregon high school are absolutely fed up with this, and they are actually taking the tampon machines that have been installed in their restrooms and vandalizing them and stuffing them in the toilet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, wait. You introduced this by saying... Hey, do you mind if I tell you about an entire generation? I despair of their future. <laughs> but I would just like to point out that this is an extremely hopeful yes. sign. Like that's that is true. the opposite of this true. Like this is great. Go on. I'm very yeah. About that. Like I thought they didn't know what was going on, but these guys yeah. are seriously based. Like I, <laughs> it's incredible. Um, but I just want to point out this is the uh, this is what the school put out, and it's just this mealy mouth little statement. Uh, in the last weeks, we have been combating vandalism in the boys' bathrooms. Students have been taking the tampon dispensers down and placing them inside the toilets. We would like your help in stopping this form of vandalism. And that is the statement in full. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, first thing. First thing here. If you, told, if you told this, if you read that same news story, what, three years ago? People would be like, well, what are the boys doing in the women's restroom in the first place? Exactly. 
Exactly. Second point, if you get if you're so upset <laughs> that you pull the tampon dispenser off the wall in theory and then throw it into the toilet, is somebody a little pissy cuz it's their time of the month? <laughs> <laughs> You never know. I mean, maybe maybe they're, they're fine. No, I, I've got to give accolade. This is the greatest news I've heard out of Gen Z. I mean, I thought they were I thought they were Roblox all the way down, but here we go. go. The kids they're, are all right, man. I I want to take that disciplinary notice from the school that says, please stop throwing <laughs> girls the tampons in the boys' bathroom, and I just want to put it in a time capsule and <laughs> fast forward like a hundred years and explain to future civilizations in the rubble of, you know, 20, 2100 America. I want to explain what was happening to like an I, I alien think, or a future person. I think you should just do an audio read of that of in the, that in that that deep bass, <laughs> and then we'll we'll inscribe that onto a gold record and launch it towards saturn on voyager 3 <laughs> we could put a little uh, music behind <laughs> it like a little sort of ambient tones well it does sound doesn't it sound to you guys like the sort of things that like dolores umbridge would put out 100%. when she ran hogwarts now i'm the, like just an enormous millennial geek but like you know what i mean like <laughs> when when the you know good place had been taken over by the bad guys and it was like we have disciplinary action to, and you're all rooting for like dumbledore's army like yeah throw the tampons in the yeah <laughs> exactly exactly that's probably in a recut somewhere yeah um the the now my it's gonna be in the hbo wrote, series yeah <laughs> the wizarding tampons and <laughs> I've I've already spun off a whole mini series in my brain. Um, we might have to we might have to get together and write this out. It's great. Yeah. I love well, it. Hunter, thanks again for <laughs> <laughs> gracing us with this delicious roadkill. Yeah. Uh, that's truly truly spectacular and good for those kids. I mean I mean if you're out there, don't don't stop. Don't no matter how pink the power suit on that Dolores is continue to to waste the tampon machines this is look, it's look a, hashtag it gets, it gets better there's a whole crowd <laughs> of based conservatives <laughs> out there willing to welcome you into reality like yes. persist we're all with you nevertheless <laughs> they they persisted go you go king it's they persisted. Persisted. <laughs> That's beautiful. i i fell in love with the hashtag it gets better ever since i watched the first one of those like super overwrought some yeah some you know lgbtq yeah A R P celeb sits down with a group of like 11 year olds and is like i know it's hard right now considering that well you probably don't even know what sex is you're 11 for crying out loud. <laughs> i was just like i'm co-opting it gets better immediately so i started using it at work for everything people would be like oh man i just i don't want to i've got this report due i don't it's like hey it gets better and they look at me like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, it, I use it for everything now. Oh, man. It's like, uh, it's like Old Bay seasoning. Okay. Spencer. Yes, sir. This book, my, my wife and I read it together. Wow. And uh, I loved it. I loved it. I, I nice. found the end particularly poignant. And I also appreciated, just right off the bat, how you did two things simultaneously one you made an argument for god without using the bible as a crutch i feel like a lot of a lot of people incorrectly make an argument to authority using the bible to try and convince people that don't acknowledge the bible's authority which is a rhetorical mistake right off the bat 
on the other side, people often dispense with trying to actually evangelize people, Mm. let's say, because they feel like there's not a method for doing that without the use of things unprovable. Mm. And here at Carl Pulling, we don't believe that's true. We believe that there's a person, a perfectly reasonable, logical case for God and a perfectly reasonable, logical case for the Bible. And you don't have to use the internal structure of it to hold up its own weight. And the way you did that in the book, I thought was was beautiful and very moving. So accolades right off the bat. It's Whoa. a it's a seminal piece. And that that was um very gratifying to read and i really enjoyed it wow well thank you when you write a book one thing you very quickly discover is there's a very specific like kind of gratification that comes when somebody says i liked the book and here's why and then it's like they saw they saw you like they saw exactly what you were doing what you were trying it's like crack so so i'm like you you gave me my fix just just now because that's really great not that i know what crack is like actually to me, just as a disclaimer <laughs> but no it's like incredible it's, it's a better i'm sure it's better it's a better high like it, to to hear that somebody not only like read the book and paid attention but sort of like got what you're going for and let me just comment a little bit on that you know as a strategy because it does speak to my deepening dissatisfaction with a lot of the evangelism that is out mm. there that <laughs> I feel as if two things often happen at once. One, you get a slogan that only makes sense if you have already accepted the premises of the Bible. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, right? Mm. Like, 100% true statement. Cosine. Agree. But to slap that down on the table in front of somebody as if it were, like, irresistibly attractive and immediately self-explanatory is actually to do an enormous disservice to scripture it's like that's an incredibly profound and difficult saying and it requires like a whole architecture of prior assumptions to understand and what we're really up against right now in the world is that all of those prior assumptions have been completely eroded like nobody actually so this book is about the prior assumptions right it's about like is there reality is there absolute truth and i do think that the other thing that happens is you know okay so there's this beautiful uh, anecdote in the Talmud, which is the collection, the kind of like, you know, Babylonian and originary collection of sort of sayings that ends up at, as modern Judaism eventually, or as the core of, of modern Judaism. And right. there's a dispute at that beginning that shows up in the Gospels over whether like scripture is all sufficient, that only the books of the Torah are needed and, in fact, acceptable as law for Jews. And that's sort of the position of the Sadducees, whom Jesus encounters all the time. But the position of the Pharisees, with whom he often also argues, is that actually there's a whole kind of like oral tradition that surrounds the Bible. And in order to understand even what the Bible is saying, you have to also engage with like, what do the rabbis say about this stuff? And what does the church say about it? Which is how we might now put it. And one of the kind of advocates of this position, one of the great advocates was Hillel, uh, after whom schools of of thought are still named. And as he's being asked to justify this, the oral Torah, the kind of extra scriptural commitments that are required, he says, you know, in order to read a sentence, you need to know the alphabet. And the alphabet is not explained or described in the Bible. And so, Mm -hmm. like, just right there, even by reading or, like, giving somebody a text, you are sort of assuming that that text exists within a context of 
agreement and understanding. Right. And like, we are so rightly, I think, defensive of scripture that we're afraid to kind of like depart from it or to like describe what goes on around it and outside of it. And we're afraid that if, if we engage too deeply with those like extra scriptural questions, then like something might come up that will disprove scripture or will like make scripture look bad. But it's like, if scripture is true, then you can literally trust 100% of the time that that will never, ever happen. And so right, like yeah. you, you, you really like, we, I think, betray our own faith when we say like, when, when we show ourselves afraid of engaging with those first order questions that are required in order to even engage scripture or, or understand it. And so, yeah, that's, that's kind of like how the book's evangelistic project works. Right. Yeah. Well, and that's a, that's a great, extremely relevant point because that same point is contained within scripture as well. If you mm. look at like Romans one, the end of Romans one, it says that God's eternal power and even his Godhead are evident in the things that he has made. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's the idea is, is integrated into the Bible that there are things outside of this text that also point in the same direction as this text. And it's required understanding and to, to fully integrate the text. It's not just, these are they that speak of me <laughs> and you search them because in them you think you'll have life, right? Like there's, there's a whole, there, there is truly the person of christ in the text and then there's truly god and his power and christ replete throughout his creation and so and you talk about that a lot in the book as well uh with the the issues of reality so mm. i'm sorry were you jumping in there no just to say like that was a discovery for saint paul i think i mean as as saul as a pharisee so part exactly of this set of sort of jewish traditions we've been talking about like he was his whole understanding was transformed on the road to Damascus by Christ, right? By, by what Jesus had done. And part of that was that it enabled him to become the prophet to the Gentiles because in the newfound conviction that even though there were all sorts of misunderstandings and like God's message had been scrambled, like that, that the natural world had been kind of distorted by sin and by man's misperceptions. Nevertheless, like he could go out to the, you know, Acropolis to, or rather to the Areopagus in Athens, or he could go to Lystra and he could go to these like, you know, Philippi, these pagan cities and not be afraid that their idolatry was going to contaminate him, which is what an observant Jew of his persuasion would have previously believed. And instead be confident that what somewhere in, by sort of digging his hands into the meat of their idolatry, he could like pull out the confused but nevertheless real presence of, of Christ that had always been behind the natural world. And, like, that was one of the things that set St. Paul in his career, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we've got to try and convince Hunter because he's a snake-handling fundamentalist yeah. and he doesn't believe in <laughs> modern medicine, so we've got to... Yeah. Why do I have to convince him of in, in favor of modern... I, I don't understand why. Oh, because science. Yeah. Science can be... Yeah, I don't believe in it. science. <laughs> Oh, I, if I get yeah. if I get an infection, I mean that's God's will, right? So, <laughs> oh, this is this Deus is Volt, okay. Deus Volt. <laughs> Deus Volt. Um, I I can't 
I, I just am remembering that you studied Greek and Latin at Yale. Hmm. I've got to be careful about casually using Latin <laughs> uh, because I'm going to get called out on it big time. Actually, Spencer, I'm really not used to having someone smarter than me on the show. <laughs> so if you could just intentionally get a couple things wrong here and there, I think that would make our audience way more comfortable. Oh, absolutely. Um, Anything that I say that's wrong, that's totally on purpose. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that's yeah. good. <laughs> I've been co-opted again. Um, well, I think we were kind of naturally diving into a place that I've got a lot of thoughts and questions about. Okay. And it, it kind of al aligns with one of the earlier parts of the book, I think the first problem that you present in the book, which is the problem with reality. Mm. And you start out by by painting this beautiful vignette of of Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> walking down, I can't remember the name of that, that conference right now, the conference where he's unveiling the metaverse. And you oh, have it's, it's all too good. The these... name is too good. It's called Connect, but it all happens online. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah go on. <laughs> the Connect, the okay. Connect conference. Exactly. <laughs> so, and uh, you see, have this great picture of everyone <laughs> connecting, yeah. where he is walking down the the aisle of a conference center like a disembodied celestial potentate, and everybody is wearing these headsets on. And uh, no one is talking. They all they are. It, it's truly nightmare fuel. Yeah, uh, yeah. If you haven't seen the picture, if you haven't seen it, just go look it up. And you were discussing how there is this present attempt being made by very powerful players to disconnect from reality realistically by clogging up the senses with with digital and and automated automated images sights sounds etc and as i was sitting there listening to you talk about this and as, uh, explicitly as you are defining the difference between interacting and connecting in the digital space and interacting and connecting with the physical space i realized that i am one of the bad guys no. so <laughs> well uh, this is yeah. it, was, it was such an interesting overlap hmm. i'm i'm have i'm holding it right here so i'm not just that jerk who doesn't have any proof but <laughs> i hold the patent for live events in virtual reality and it, i guess it was it was six or seven years ago when we started start i uh, was working with a group at the company that i work for yeah and vr was just coming out on the scene it might have been a little bit longer than that now that i think about it i'm getting exceptionally old i think i'm about to die <laughs> but <laughs> regardless it pat the patent process takes so long so i only recently got awarded the patent from the patent office, even though we filed it probably closer to a decade ago. But we had this great idea that we would combine live video with virtual environments mm -hmm. that would allow people from disparate parts of the, the world to join together and enjoy live events together. So if you can't make it out to a baseball game with your, with your folks, pop on a VR headset, they pop one on, you sit in a virtual a virtual stadium and you you discuss the game you you know you're sitting right next to him you turn look at him and watch this 360 video feed so you could watch the game we thought wouldn't that be awesome it's like a way to actually <laughs> connect people and yeah and uh we had all these different ideas subsequent to it about shopping and and merchandise all this kind of stuff it was a it was a really fun process and and in the end we were awarded the patent which is now being used not by my company but other companies that are are um farming out that that patent so anyway we called it alive and it, there is an acronym which i can't give away because it gives away the name of the company but we we named the the 
uh, to functionality alive. Mm. And I was sitting there thinking about my work with VR and then listening to your book, I was like, oh no. <laughs> like, <laughs> in, just, in just a little less than a decade, we've gone from the, I was, you know, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, hopeful mm. that this would connect us in other ways, and then seeing the way that it's actually being implemented in the world, I'm like, we're all dead. <laughs> so I'm, I'm working currently on rebranding the patent, but I thought that was such an mm. interesting, interesting angle to attack this problem from. Mm. Uh, the way that the way that our technology is interacting with our distaste for reality. So. My question to you is, because I'm obviously not settled on it, I'm in a huge state of flux, mm. is our technology, is it pushing our discourse and our zeitgeist, or do you think it's our post-factual, nihilistic, post-modern interpretation of the world mm. that is empowering this technology and and putting wind in those particular sails i they definitely seem to be collaborating yeah but what do you think is the progenesis so i can say this to you guys because you'll kind of get it and this is a very difficult thing to say in some other context although i i would continue to say it i suppose <laughs> regardless but i think the answer to that question is our philosophy and our technology are both part of the problem. They are mutually reinforcing one another. So it's not as simple as saying like, oh, we just need to throw all the tech away or, oh, we just need to fix the philosophy. This is really, it's about usage, it's about whatever. They're, they're both entwined. They're intertangled with, with each other. And the reason for that is because we have no theology. And that actually the problem here is a spiritual problem. And that is actually something different from saying we're not thinking about this right or we're not doing this right. It's like we are not orienting this correctly toward the supernatural world. And this is an inheritance of like 500 years worth of kind of understandable, but I think in many instances mistaken uh modes of pursuit into the world to strip the world of its supernatural content and sometimes you know in some parts of the in some corners of the scientific revolution that means just like we're just going to look at matter and the physical world so that we can understand it. it doesn't mean there isn't anything beyond it just means we're going to look at it but in some cases you know born in the same breath there is a whole project of just denying the the supernatural world the spiritual world the material world or the immaterial world altogether and I guess my feeling is like that very telling anecdote that you just shared is um, part of a trend where we invent some new technology and we begin with this bright eyed optimism about it. And we see all of its very real potential. And then within a matter of years or in this case now, like really like months at this point, that optimism sours and curdles into horror, dread, uh, you know, apocalyptic fear. You see what's happening with AI right now. You know, this, these programs which, you know, are, are doing, to me, very interesting things, but certainly not becoming intelligent. You know, they're, they're, we've, we've right. learned essentially to, you know, use 
probability functions to guess the next word in a text. And if you do that like a trillion, trillion times, all sorts of interesting results occur. And there are a million use cases for this that are not evil and wrong, that mm. are sort of life-affirming and interesting. And yet the stories, the news, the predictions about AI all have to do with like, as I heard one commentator put it, like we are just made out of atoms and our AI can use those atoms for something else. And if it gets that idea into its head, there's no telling how powerfully and quickly it might do that. It's like, well, why would you look at this tool and instantly worry that it's going to replace you or scrap you for parts? And the answer is only if you had already decided that you were, yeah. to begin with, a heap of parts or a primitive machine. And you don't have to go kind of searching in the archival material very deeply to uncover like some secret, the philosophy that says you are basically a, a primitive biological machine. Like it's very explicit. In, it's in Nietzsche. It's in a lot of Soviet writing. It's in like there's, th that idea has been very powerful in the Western mind for, for hundreds of years. And the only way out of it, the only escape is not to scrap the tech, is not to like come up with some grand new idea, but to put your faith in the reality that you are more than material, that you are more than parts. And I, right. I, I just don't think there's any way around that. And I know that it's like less appealing than, you know, capital B-I, big ideas to a certain <laughs> cast of mind. But it isn't on another level, it's actually the biggest idea that, that the kind of bedrock of reality is not a sort of heap of atoms but is actually the spirit that gives form to the atoms. Um, and and I, I think that our, our problem is, is theological. It's not tech or philosophy. It's, it's to do with spirit. Man, you know, it's so I, I heard you actually say, I think, the exact line from your book, the bedrock mm. of reality. Mm. Um, that, yeah. that, that, those two words stood out to me so strongly because mm. I was just, that really is, as you put it, the first question of philosophy. And it's also the jumping off point, I feel like, too, when, you know, every, all these ideas exist before us and influence us. And we are kind of like sitting just uh, lovingly uh, mm. engrossed in them, I guess is the way to put it. And, um, you know, it, it was interesting, too, because and I, I one of the reasons I really liked reading your book, Spencer, is because I saw a journey in my own life take place within the book. Mm. Um, and it, it was really interesting because. Basically, early in the book, you talk about the bedrock question. And I had this moment in my life where I basically had to wrestle with that. And I mm -hmm. came to the point where I was like, no, there is a meaning. This is post being a Christian. This is just a normal thing in my life. And what was so funny is it wasn't until uh, it was a little bit after that I picked up uh, Chesterton and mm -hmm. I began wow. to read Orthodoxy. And then I yeah. flipped to page uh, 86 in your book and here's Chesterton talking about that same question. And I'm like, yeah. this is so bizarre. Like, I cannot believe this is being tied together. And what I really would like to encourage people is um, how approachable you made all this and oh, how just, how I think you really uh, wanted to teach people and show people that this was out there for them. Because, you know, unfortunately I came to this before I got to your book and it would have really helped me. It would have really helped that person back then. Um, but what I wanted to ask you too is just kind of like, is there a, how, how did you come to this? Was it a personal thing for you? Was it just going through school and learning all this stuff? Like, did you ever have a moment where you actually had to wrestle with that question? Because that was, 
for me, that was the part that stood out the most in this book. Yeah, you know, first of all, thank you. Second of all, it's it's absolutely personal. It's intensely personal for me. Mm. And that kind of uh, drive, desire to make this stuff less formidable yeah. than it is made out, that's the driving force of my life and my career. You know, oh, I, wow. I okay. grew up in a, in a house filled with books. I, I was super lucky that way, you know, and I had to like grow up and learn that that was that that was weird. And that <laughs> it was weird that I was reading them, you know, like that, that I, I just sort of took it for granted. And the reason I took it for granted is because it was obvious to me from the beginning that being surrounded by books means being surrounded by friends. Mm. It doesn't mean like having to bang your head against impenetrable tomes, although you might end up doing that out of sheer interest. What it actually means is that there are voices from the past that you can commune with. And the reason why that is so important is that every day we wake up and we're assaulted by a sea of declarations, Mm. authoritative pronouncements from governing bodies, from so-called experts, from pundits. You know, Don Lemon says this and the WEF says that and the CDC says that. And... Everything that they say and every problem that we're dealing with is presented to us as if it had never occurred yes. before, as if it were totally unprecedented. And it feels that way, right? Mm. Nobody's ever had to deal with, like, I mean, transgenderism is a big subject in the book, right? Yeah. And the, it feels like, you know, they're, they're saying that you have this gender identity that's, like, distinct from your body. It's like nobody's ever thought about this before. And so people that are upset about this get really disoriented and we feel like, you know, who do we turn to? And the reason for that is we have been deprived of our main source of wisdom. We've been told that it's evil and wrong and backwards and superstitious to open those old dead white guys, right, and, and talk to them because, like, their their language is unintelligible and their views are outdated and everything good was figured out, like, after Charles Darwin, basically. These are things that people say, you know, and they're things that are designed to prevent you from finding out that they're untrue because if you are told that Aristotle is incomprehensible, you'll never crack open a, a book by him. And one thing you'll discover in C.S. Lewis, who's somebody I put alongside Chesterton very often, you know, C.S. Lewis says, like, the books, the old books are so much easier to understand than the books about old books. Like, the things that people say about Aristotle are way harder to understand than than Aristotle. Like, and, and so this realization, which for me was just, I was very lucky, it was just part of my upbringing, um, is that, you know, we're not alone. We're actually, there have been people throughout centuries who have really wrestled with questions about how to be good at being human, about where we should stand in the universe and the cosmos. And they didn't do it so that eggheads like me could write PhD theses about them. They did it so that people like all of us can actually have something better to go on than what Dr. Fauci says tomorrow. Like some chunk of some nugget of wisdom. And so like when you talk I mean, about hopefully nothing tomorrow, right? Like let's list are we still on break from Fauci? <laughs> well, <laughs> another Fauci will rise up in his place. This is another thing people don't that's get. Right. You know, they'll just they'll just anoint somebody else. But there's one thing I'll say about the bedrock of reality thing, right? When you say that's yeah. the first question of, of philosophy, like you're you are absolutely right. And I wonder even if you know how right you are. I mean maybe you do, but like when Aristotle surveys the history of philosophical questions, what is 
existence made out of is the very first one, like Thales and Heraclitus and the pre-Socratics and all these guys. He lists a whole series of opinions. And he says, like, and basically you can say it's made out of stuff, gunk, matter, or you can say it's made out of spirit, you know, some sort of immaterial thing or you can say it's fundamentally the bedrock of reality is the fusion of those two things and so it's like that is the first question you have to ask and like and 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 how would anybody know that unless like somebody had written that down so that you don't have to go wandering in the darkness like banging your head against this or kind of grabbing at half truths but somebody has actually presented that to you as part of your inheritance because now you don't have to go wandering in the dark like now you have a map and that's everything that's kind of yeah that's that's why i wrote the book the way it is i just wanted people to have a little inroad into that because i feel like they've been shut out of it and that's really the if you had to pick aristotle's most brilliant idea i think that might be it Mm. that he took he took the socratic form and embedded it in reality which gave rise to telos right like this is again i'm using greek and i really shouldn't be um but but (laughs) so far you're doing 10 out of 10 100 batting a thousand uh okay all right (laughs) (laughs) i'm still good but like that there there sure is there an archetypal chair somewhere out there in the cosmos floating around maybe maybe not in the idea space maybe you can think of things that are used as chairs but here that's what aristotle uh, aristotle gave us in a, in a fundamental way is we're going to take that meaning and that purpose and we're going to infuse it directly mm-hmm. into the molecules that these things are made out of so that you don't have to let's say uh, shut off shuck off this mortal coil and gallivant through the stars to find true meaning that true meaning surrounds us and it's built into the purpose of the objects that surround us and and then most fundamentally ourselves yeah right that we we are built with a purpose and we can engage with that purpose in a forthright or or not so forthright way that's one of the things i love about aristotle for sure that brings me to a question okay so it's a little choose your own adventure moment (laughs) i want to talk about quantum physics oh because great this okay that's good all right uh, sometimes it gets in that well we, you guys were talking about making things accessible and we're gonna go <laughs> the exact the other way <laughs> i assume but, that if people are here they want to hear the high weeds i don't know that's maybe that's uh, yeah that's uh i i half the calls i get are are hey that was a great episode love what you said and the other half are i did not understand anything about that so why about? don't you do it again live yeah. and that those are all my mother <laughs> <laughs> so um all the calls Okay, so I'll give a little, a little bit of background just for anybody that is listening. A quantum has a couple different definitions. That's mainly what we're dealing with in quantum physics. We're dealing with stuff that's very, very, very small. A quantum can be expressed as the amount of energy needed to cause an electron to jump from one valent state to the next. It can be measured as that amount of energy. I think the way that people use it more colloquially and colloquially nowadays my greek is doing better than my english is <laughs> to <laughs> describe a particle that exhibits both particle like and wave like behavior right and so there's this idea embedded in in quantum physics that photons which are an example of these quantums are careening through space and they are they are exhibiting both particle like 
motion and wave-like motion. And we have actually talked about this before in one of our episodes with our friend Hari, talking about the it's called the observer at the end of time if you want to go listen to it uh if you are listening to this episode but we talk about the fact that there are several experiments like the double slit experiment or more fundamentally the the quantum eraser delayed choice quantum eraser that shows that these particles appear to collapse into definitive particle-like behavior when they're being observed by an intelligent observer and that they exhibit nebulous probabilistic wave-like behavior when they are not observed um spencer I'm, are you familiar somewhat with those experiments yes yes i am okay all right great so there so as these particles are moving through space traveling through the vacuum of space they are exhibiting wave-like behavior generally uh unless they're being observed which doesn't happen terribly frequently when you consider all the radiation and all the space there is and how many eyeballs we have so there is this concept that until recently was not proven about the quantum field and the quantum field is the medium through which the waves of quantums pass through so when you have a wave on the beach there's a medium a physical medium that the wave is allowed to travel through right and that's the collection of water in the ocean you can have the same thing in the air if you can hear my voice right now that's a pressure wave that's traveling through the medium of air molecules between your speakers or your headphones and your eardrums that are that are propagating that wave from the sound of my voice as it collides with your eardrum that's what that's what sound is light passes through the vacuum of space in theory not through a medium so hawking came up with this idea about the quantum field is that there is below spatial reality there is a more fundamental level of reality where these waves travel across strings this is this is partially where we get super string theory we'll leave that alone for a little bit but as as those strings vibrate in the quantum field the vibrations lead to peaks and troughs in that that structure which coincide with particles and waves in in our own reality so the idea is that you don't you don't have to have a physical vacuum i'm sorry a physical medium for these waves to travel through these waves can travel through the quantum field and this was not explicitly proven i think until uh, just a couple of years ago with hawking radiation which we don't have to explain the ins and outs of but hawking radiation is basically this idea that information does leak out of the the event horizon of black holes uh i say that to say that that should be impossible because the information is encoded on quantums which are comprised of either energy or matter which means that matter and energy do leave the the center of black holes with an interference pattern so that's that was pretty neat and it helped us prove this idea that there is a quantum field that transcends spatial reality uh, which is how how that information beats gravity in a black hole well okay i say a lot to say this gets into a fundamental question in the book which i thought i just completely nerded out on and we uh my my wife i think fell asleep multiple times <laughs> while i was talking about it as i'm sure all of our listeners have at this point now so anyhow i say that to say there is this idea that's come out recently that we exist 
you know, potentially in a multiverse, and there's a ton of funny reasons that people believe that. But there is this assumption that our matter is simulated, uh, which is is interesting because I think, like most ideas that are captivating, it attaches itself to one thing that's true and then draws an incorrect conclusion. Mm. So the part that is true, I think, and this is proved out in a certain sense via Hawking's uh, experiments and Hawking radiation leaving black holes and the existence of the of the quantum field is that there is something that is more fundamental than matter. There's this idea that information is the bedrock of the universe mm. as far as we've been able to study it so far. And there, then their conclusion of that is, well, that means we're not real. It's like, no, <laughs> hold on a minute. You, you jumped the shark right there. And you, you laid out this, this argument in the book between Copenhagen and Schrodinger quantum physics. And I, I want to dive into that. Hopefully we can, we can loop back around and, and make this connection. But can you tell us a little bit about the, the dichotomy that you were writing about there? I think it feathers in nicely to, to this discussion. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, there's a lot there, but I'm really glad that you brought it all up because <laughs> I'm obsessed with this stuff and I'm doing more work on it right now. So it's very oh, much like okay, very in cool. my wheelhouse. Um, first of all, most importantly of all, have you seen Philomena Kunk on Netflix? Yes. Okay. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Wait, did we talk about this last episode? No, I can't remember. Anyway, okay. yes. So you've seen Philomena Kunk who yeah, by the way cracking me. oh my gosh so she i first saw her when i was doing in grad school and she was still just on the bbc and i was like this woman is the funniest like mainstream comedian i've she is so good and her whole shtick is she just asks brain-breakingly stupid questions to right. extraordinarily credentialed academics so guys with like obe you know they're not just professors at oxford they're like knights of the uh, queen's honors or whatever and at the end, she does a little bit with this. I don't know if I'm spoiling anything for you, but she does quiz somebody about simulation theory. And mm. this is what you're talking about, that we're somehow, we are simply, you know, in a script that somebody is testing some sort of hyper advanced computer program. We represent like certain possibilities that that program is testing out or, or whatever. Um, and she's like, she goes, if it's a simulation, why do I have to do, film this? Come here and film this with you. Couldn't the simulation just put it on the telly? <laughs> what, <laughs> why isn't the simulation just me eating an eclair on loop like in one of those gifts? I'd swap for that. And it's just, I mean, it's a series of like absurdist but also totally valid questions about simulation theory, which, wow. um, yeah, I think that this is, these are all one of my sort of annoying conceits in the book is that a lot of these are just like efforts at kind of wriggling out of the most obvious explanation for these things which is that there's sort of a supernatural layer to reality that right. it requires the existence of a final authoritative mind if we want anything to make any sense at all and these are old arguments and people prefer like something kind of flashy and new like the multiverse or simulation theory but um the dispute over quantum physics, which I talk about in the book, um, is, as you say, roughly a dispute between the kind of Copenhagen school, Niels Bohr being one of the main sort of representatives of that school. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I hesitate even to like lay it 
on Schrodinger's feet because a lot of people were sort of troubled with this, but the kind of many-worlds, multi-world interpretation of quantum physics. Because, as you indicate, right, this whole thing, this whole problem, everybody gets into this mess because of Max Planck and black body radiation, right? So Max Planck is, like, sitting around, like, throwing light at this, at, like, a warm, dark body and, like, sort of measuring how it's radiating versus how it's supposed to radiate. And that's where the problem of quanta comes up, right? Because it seems as if there are certain, like only certain wavelengths at which these things can emanate. It's not a smooth, continuous curve. And that's only possible if light is not acting as a wave, but in these little packets, right? The quantum of of light is like the photon. Um, And that is when, like, everything starts to really go haywire. And there have been kind of indications of this already, like, you know, uh, Maxwell's demon and, like, problems with thermodynamics were sort of coming up to the, to the fore. But um, now it, the, you know, SH really hits the fan, you know, like, and, and it, it, within a, a few decades, you have, like, de Broglie and the sort of um, wave-particle duality of all matter, not just light, which is extremely unsettling. And the person that really resists this tooth and nail is Albert Einstein, who is a kind of devoted mathematical realist. He's like, when we write equations, fundamentally, we are laying out mathematical terms which either represent, like, things in the world or facts about things in the world. I mean, I'm oversimplifying here, but it's like if, you know, F equals MA, like Newton's second law, is a description about, like, bodies moving and patterns in their behavior. And it's like, if it's, if, if there isn't something on the other side of the equation that looks like that, then there are some real problems with just sort of our epistemology, like what we're able to know. And the problem with, like, the wave function, with Schrodinger's sort of description, with his own mathematical description of reality, is that it describes this enormous sort of range of positions, wavelengths, like uh, energy states, that only collapses, only resolves to one in the presence of an observer. And outside the presence of an observer, like, it's sort of moving through a range of of potentialities, of possibilities, of probabilities, right? Um, And one of my favorite ways of hearing this described is, like, you know, the wave function is not like a, a wave in the ocean. It's like a crime wave, right? Like a crime wave is sort of a pattern of activity that you, if, if you're in a certain place and there's a crime wave going on, you know there's a certain likelihood that you're going to get robbed, but you aren't actually describing like one criminal sort of moving through space. And so if like right. if matter is like that, then it might not be made up of these little chunks of gunk that we've been basically dep- picturing in our mind since Newton. And I really feel that this problem goes back further than quantum physics, that for a while we've been talking, and this was a big objection that was raised to Newton's Principia, uh, and I mentioned this in the book, that like for a while um, we've been talking about these objects without, as, as if we knew what they were in space and time without actually really knowing what they are, like gravity, right, forces. Like these are not actually material entities. They're patterns of behavior, the way that phenomena tend to transpire. And we picture them in our heads as like red arrows or sort of waves or like whatever, but that doesn't actually explain what they are any more than it would to say like an angel is moving the planets. Like, you know, this was the big objection to, the, to gravity. It's like, what is it? What's doing the motion? And Newton famously said, I frame no hypotheses. Like, this is not what my evidence has shown is what, what this is, just that this is how things tend to behave. And so patterns, energy, probabilities, these are all immaterial things they are they describe kind of not objects but facts about objects or you know uh, ideas about objects 
And as I understand it, like the existence of the quantum field would suggest that actually those possibilities, those immaterial things are like more fundamental than this, these chunks of gunk, these objects, which opens up this whole big can of worms that actually we, like human consciousness is in a relationship with, oh, I don't know, a void that is formless and deep. And that like on the other <laughs> side, you know, that like, oh, who's to say, like maybe somebody sort of, you know, maybe there are words that like shape this, you know, it, it, just spitballing here. Like maybe there is a, a word at the beginning of all time that kind of gathers these various possibilities into a range. And maybe like that same mind invited humanity to like put names onto things. And then that mm. crystallized and finally creation like basically what I'm getting at is that you end up with a picture that looks very like what is described in Genesis it's not what's described in Genesis if you take a kind of rudimentary scientific approach and you say like if I had a GoPro camera like it would have looked this way at the time because that sort of isn't what the text is doing right the text is giving you a fundamental description of of kind of the process of, of the of the creation of, of reality and basically what it says is you know the first thing that there is is light, which has, as we now know, this fundamental indeterminacy. And that there is a viewer, right, which kind of puts the capstone on these things by, by looking at them and making qualitative assessments of them, that this is good, right? Not just that this is, but that it has, like, value and even telos, as you, as you perhaps indicated, right, purpose. And that then this being invites, as the capstone of his creation, into it, a an entity that looks like him that is like some somehow a fundamentally a representative of him an image of him how is this the case well we give names to the animals right like our ob observation resolves these possibilities or at least is kind of like the the other side of the resolution of those possibilities right is that there there are human beings to say of things like this is good this is bad to make judgments um anyway all of this is by way of saying like theists can be quite comfortable with these sorts of descriptions of, of reality, Absolutely. right? Um, materialists cannot. And this is the problem that Schrodinger's cat was designed to illustrate. Like, people always say, oh, Schrodinger's cat, like, shows that the cat is both alive and dead. It's like, no, Schrodinger was, was pointing up for you a big, big problem with the implications of his own thesis, unless there were multiple universes in which the cat was both alive and dead, right? He's saying, like, you know, if these particles have like a fundamental indeterminacy that is that is real then like the world sort of splits off into all these branching realities that where things are true and untrue at the same time and my own sort of intuition which is sort of along the lines of the copenhagen interpretation is that the the best way to resolve these things is to admit that there is kind of a bedrock of reality that is that isn't just stuff that has some more um not even spiritual, but just cognitive, right? Like conscious-based, consciousness-based um, existence. And that's, I think, I, I think that, that the evidence of our experiments is screaming that at us. And it's only because yes. of our kind of, you know, prior convictions and assumptions that prevent us from interpreting the evidence that way. I, I, it's beautifully said. This, this is why I think this show and me personally have uh, are so uh, attracted in a, a gravitational yeah. way to to these topics because there was such a time when maybe general relativity or the precursors to it led us to the assumption that god is dead and it feels like the bleeding edge of science right now is leading back to god's not only alive but he sustains mm. 
everything in the universe and of course i believe that that's true and it, now it's a beautiful picture because because even among the the quantum physicists right now there's an argument whether or not matter creates disturbances in the quantum field or if it's that the, the disturbances in the quantum field give rise to matter mm. and my assumption is that it's the latter right that there is a there is a immaterial logos there is there is reason in the universe that all everything else rides atop of and it's it's um it's a crazy fantastical idea if we couldn't measure and quantify this one specific part of it and i I love that you brought genesis into it because this is just as god's speech you know his own logos his reason called matter and space and time and energy out of the void out of out of tehom out of the abyss and in the same fundamental way our observation and, and he spoke and then he observed in the same way our observation takes matter out of a cloud of possible egan states and collapses it into the definite and what what other than that could the saying that i was made in the image of god mean that uh, that he imbued with me the observation that that brings habitable order collapses habitable order out of chaos and possibility like i think it's just one of the most beautiful ideas in my opinion. Absolutely. So. And it and it resolves and sort of complicates in these interesting ways. It, it resolves this kind of long-standing set of issues about like, well, you know, was it really seven days of creation? And what about the dinosaurs and the fossils and whatever? I mean, there, there's this beautiful um, book by Owen Barfield, who is one of the lesser known inklings. So he hung out, good friends with C.S. Lewis, and hung out with all those guys. And it's called Saving the Appearances. And it deals with a lot of these issues, even, you know, at that point, quantum physics was sort of well underway. And his, his great point at the opening of that book is like, all of these things have happened that we have admitted into our theoretical physics that we take no account of in our other sciences, like geology. So we go around saying things like, you know, absent a human observer, basic constituents of matter, like the electron and the photon, have fundamentally indeterminate natures that are almost indescribable in language, right? And then we go on to describe, like, the history of the Earth for millions of years before there were any observers on it, as if it would have looked exactly like you know the way it looks to us now that like there were these you know years that transpired time elapsed in exactly the same way there were objects there were entities but it's like all of that we're imagining what it would have looked like to a person if a person had been there but there were no people there and one thing that quantum physics is telling us is like if there were no people there there's actually a totally different set of categories that applies and so it's like even if you believe that the earth is exactly as old as the paleontologists tell you it is it only became that old the moment it had a perceiving human consciousness on it because before that there was no time and like time being and it's like okay so now we know for instance that time is like fundamentally sort of a construct of the human mind in relationship to matter and it's like you know who could have told you that saint augustine in book 11 (laughs) of the confessions like is like it develops this thesis at length you know and and it's and i'm sure that scientists find this incredibly annoying when when theologically minded people like us start doing this because it's like it's not as if augustine 
have the yeah. language or the mathematics to say E equals MC squared. So it's not as if Einstein didn't contribute anything to our understanding. And it's not as if, like, if he had come up with something that contradicted what Augustine said, like, he should have he should have said exactly what his discoveries indicated to him. Like, I don't in any way want to prescribe what scientists are able to discover. But I do think that, like, when they discover things, the implications of them often scream theologically in ways that they themselves are, are less than able to, like, recognize because they've shut themselves off from this whole realm of of discussion and it's like you know there is a very exciting as you say bleeding edge going on right now where like people are starting to realize this um and the thing that makes many of our discoveries fall into place is some sort of um theological theist account of of the world right well i know it makes at least some of the scientists mad because i got kicked out of my <laughs> astrophysics <laughs> course several times over that argument no way. So, anyway yeah that was it was uh it, i not a, it was the simplest argument that i could make of it was just that matter exists therefore the laws of thermodynamics did not always exist <laughs> therefore you cannot use thermodynamics to study the past uh -huh. and they didn't like that at all um <laughs> but i passed so i guess there you go. uh water under the bridge yeah. <laughs> cool okay well that that was uh very enjoyable for me I think we've murdered quantum. I think it's done. Oh, good. Yeah, we uh, solved quantum it. Quantum physics it. over, <laughs> solved. <laughs> no problem, guys. We'll uh, have the unified uh, field equation on your desk in the morning. All right, Hunter, we have to talk for a minute about private internet access. Now, PIA is my favorite VPN. Have you ever used one before? Oh, yeah, they're great. Excellent. Jamie? My parents met on a VPN. Well, I'm not at all convinced that that's relevant, but let me tell you this. If you're online in the 21st century, you need a VPN. Why? As the amount of threats that exists on the internet increases and the amount of our data that's being stored online increases simultaneously, it's imperative that we do something to protect ourselves, protect our data as we surf the web. Now, VPN stands for Virtual Private Network. And what it does is it encrypts your data as it's going between your device, your machine, and the greater internet preventing it from being intercepted by malicious actors and hackers and identity thieves, etc. So a VPN is non-negotiable in today's digital day and age. Now, PIA is my favorite because it's the world's most transparent VPN provider. They have over 30 million downloads and they never store user data. They have a strict no logs policy, which has actually been proven out multiple times in courts and by a third party audit from Deloitte. So they truly don't store your data. That's right, Chris. And what private internet access does is it hides your IP address and encrypts your internet connection. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that internet service providers and government sensors can't get at your data. If you're saying something that you don't want them to look at, even if it's just your business, there's no reason for those nefarious actors to have any view into your data or what you're doing on the internet. That's your data. Protect it. That's right. And private internet access also comes with loads of entertainment benefits. The VPN is compatible with all of your major streaming platforms. So you shouldn't experience any issues running Netflix or Hulu or whatever streaming entertainment device you want to use. Plus, it's one of the few VPNs that supports P2P, that's peer-to-peer -peer file sharing. So this is a huge benefit for power users. Not only do you get the benefit 
of using any streaming service. You can also use it with any operating system. We're talking Windows, Mac OS, Android, Linux, iOS. Use different operating systems, not a problem. Have an Android phone and want to use it on your Mac, not a problem. And what's even better than that, you can have an unlimited amount of devices use it at the same time. That's right. And Carpooling has the best deal for you today on PIA, on getting a VPN, securing your data. For just $2.03 a month, you can start protecting yourself online and your family online. That's 83% off the sticker price for private internet access. So act now. You get that great price plus four months free and you really have nothing to lose because private internet access offers a free 30-day money-back guarantee as well as 24-7 support so you are definitely going to either be pleased with the product or not be out a single dime but i know that you're going to love it you're going to want to keep it private internet access has a great vpn Carl Pooling has a great deal for you. Support them. Support the show. Go to carlpooling.com slash PIA right now to take advantage of this great deal. Again, that's carlpooling.com slash PIA. Snag a VPN. Protect yourself online. Support them. Support the show. And we will really appreciate it. All right. Let's get back to the episode. There's, there's another element of the book that you dove into that has actually been dovetailing with some of the discussions that hunter and i have both been having recently mm. about the body yeah yeah hunter you had a couple of points here i think you wanted to you wanted to bring up and then maybe i can i can shore up some gaps yeah um i think you know this is this this is kind of going back to that first question of philosophy a little bit to me uh and when you're talking about how aristotle kind of is bringing in both spirit and matter together. Mm, And it seems a lot in our day and age, you know, that we very much want to either live in one of those. Mm. Um, And, you know, I I think this kind of goes back even to the beginning of this conversation, Spencer, when we were talking about evangelism, because we tend to evangelize only in the spirit and Mm -hmm. with none of the matter involved. And to me, it seems like one of the great things that it's important to show to people is the fact that those two worlds are combined in a real meaningful way. Um, You know, you talk about this a little bit when it comes to childbirth, but I wonder if you could speak more on to how like the body is actually tied to spiritual truth, if you could, and vice versa, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. This is another one that's very near and dear to my heart. And I totally agree with you that I was just thinking about this, you know, it seems sometimes as if we talk in church or in kind of public facing evangelism as if like the world is this kind of damned carnival that is yeah. going on in, in in the exterior darkness like outside of our little conclave of of reality and truth there is like everything that everybody thinks is real and that includes like you know the it includes the body it includes like just the school choice movement and the and toasters and science and all the stuff that we've just been talking about is like the world and then in here in like the church or or whatever we have these like kind of spiritual fairy stories that like aren't true now but will come true magically after we're dead like at the Mm. resurrection all of a sudden like this little central area of like imaginary spirit will become more real than all this other stuff that's out there. Right. And 
what's funny is in a certain sense, I believe that that's quite true. Like, I do believe that the claims of the, the flesh will fade evanescent and will be left with a kind of redeemed, sanctified existence that looks very, very different from what most people think the world looks like right now. But what I fundamentally and importantly don't believe is that that's when that happens, it will be like, you know, everything, all, the whole slate of just this world as we know it is is wiped away. Like, I think that what we think of as the church and spirit and the work of the spirit and God is running like a golden thread right through the heart of all of this worldly stuff that we want to reject and stay away from. And so we actually can't escape, like, speaking into and talking about the way that the world is actually structured. I mean, to return to St. Augustine, right, he says that the city of God and the city of man are enmeshed in the here and now. And the, it goes into the gospel, the wheat and the tares, right? They're, they're sewed together. They're mixed together. And, and so you're actually not going to figure things out by, like, abstracting away from the world. You have to be able to discern in the world the actions of the spirit and the reality of the supernatural. The reason that any of this has to do with Aristotle is because of what Hunter was indicating earlier and and i totally agree with you hunter this is aristotle's greatest insight and the word for it is a technical term um that we use now to describe it is hylomorphism and this is a sort of a jargony word which is a shame because it's actually a pretty straightforward concept it comes from two greek words hule which means that stuff that gunk that we've been talking about the, yeah. the kind of like flesh um and morphe and morphe is shape form uh, any of those words that you want to use to describe the kind of immaterial but real structure that, that matter has. Mm. And just like us, really, Aristotle was up against two extreme possibilities. One, it's all gunk. And the form is sort of a superposition or a convention or an accident. I mean, this was the atomists had this view that, like, everything is just bodies moving around in space. And, like, they happen to come into these configurations, but those are sort of accidents of our human perception. Like, you know, just because the table is in front of you, that's not the reality. That's just your experience of, of the kind of atoms. But really, at the granular level, what's what's real is the particles that make up the table. Like, that's mm. the bedrock of, of things. Um, versus the Platonists, right, who were kind of Aristotle's progenitors. He comes, he's a disciple of, of Plato. And, and he takes Plato and Plato's version of Socrates to task for thinking that, well, the table and the, the things in front of you, it's they're not real but for the opposite reason that the materialists think they're not real because they're actually just these pale emanations of what's really real which is like this sort of spiritual intangible form of the table capital t or form of love form of desire these these kind of like capital letter um things that exist in the world of the spirit beyond the here and now and hylomorphism, which is to take the world of form and the world of matter and to smush them together, right? That all of these things are always and forever bound up with one another. Yes. It's sort of the great Aristotelian answer to this problem is that actually, when you look at the table, you're already looking at stuff, wood, metal, whatever. But the stuff in the wood doesn't explain the table. And you're looking at something called a table, which is the form of the table. And that doesn't explain it either because the two things go together. In order to give a full account of what it is, you have to, you know, put these two things in union and understand them as one. And the reason that this comes up in the book is because I'm talking about transgenderism, right? I'm talking about yes. this whole thing of like, you know, your body is kind of this mistake or it's, you know, you need to escape it. You need to 
chop it up and reconfigure it and do whatever all these nasty things to it and you know we think of that as this new thing but it's actually a very very old idea right comes out of the it might not be a bad strategy if you're trying to get a bud light brand <laughs> otherwise i just don't think it i don't think it plays out right uh, sorry go ahead absolutely i mean yeah or any other like product especially if they sell women's you know women's clothing women's like anything at these or a google doodle named after you these are yeah. all <laughs> you know didn't didn't they make dylan maybe jamie you can double check me on this but didn't they make dylan the spokesperson for like kotex or something or or yeah. gave him a spot with it that is just um he got like a tampax or some some big tampon brand it makes me if reminds me of the boys if i don't in the know bathroom the, like throwing this stuff into the <laughs> sea you know <laughs> i, yeah, yeah, eat yeah, it all I don't the know the tampon brand i'm sure that spencer doesn't <laughs> um, that's just a small joke um but but i can't jamie look up whatever one that was and let us know you know j- to kind of bring us back here just for a second you know yeah this is your point spencer is so well taken and it's kind of why i love the fact that the second commandment talks mm. about loving you know love God with your spirit, with your heart, and your body, and mm, your mind, yes. everything together. And like sometimes, you know, when people are struggling with their faith, and they're like, I don't know what to do. I'm just so like, they get really navel-gazing. I love to tell them, do what you know to do. You know, yes. act. Do the action. And I think that, I, 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 I don't know, does that seem to correlate with what you're speaking to here? Because I think sometimes we, we, we need that piece of it in the church, too. And we, we've given that to the scientific priests, as you kind of allude to them in the book. Oh, 100%. Yes. Mm. I mean, this is, what does Jesus say when he's asked what the major, you know, what the most important commandment is, right? Like, mm. the, on this hang, all the law and the prophet. Love the Lord your God, right, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like unto it, love thy neighbor as thyself. Yes. And later on, of course, we get, you know, if anyone says he, in the epistles, we get, if anyone says he loves God but hates his neighbor, he is a liar. For if he does not love his neighbor whom he has seen, how can he not, how can he love God whom he has not seen? That these sort of abstract, imaginary, high-level sort of commitments that we have always, always, always cash out in terms of the physical, tangible world, that they're threaded through the world everywhere and always. The spirit is enmeshed in the matter. And and that's, you know, I think that's why Jesus yokes those two commandments together, you know, is that this these sort of core things. And, and, and by the way, right, like everybody's always talking as if the Trinity is this like impossible <laughs> mystery that nobody can understand, right? And it's like, on the one hand, yes, of course, fathomless truth, like, you know, you can drown in it forever. On the other hand, Jesus just walks right up and talks as if we are triune, right? As if we are tripartite, heart, mind, and yes. strength, right? That these three things are kind of combined in one. And of course, Plato speaks this way as well, that like we have three parts to our soul. It's not unique even to the Judeo-Christian tradition to understand that there are these different aspects of us because we are these fundamentally hylomorphic beings. We are soul in, ma- in body, right? Soul in matter. Um, and once you understand yourself that way, it's like, all of these things suddenly start to make sense. As, as you say, right, um, we have this kind of abstracted, I, I hate to say it, but I, I think some of the kind of Protestant traditions bear a little bit of the blame for this, like not okay, to be a little like I mean, look, like I, <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the world's worst Protestant because I like think the Catholics are right about a lot of things, but 
<laughs> fundamentally and importantly not about uh, like some other important things anyway this is a side a sidebar just to say that like this whole thing that like your faith is what saves like that's true but the reason that paul and james are both in the bible is because you know it, show me faith without works and i'll show you a faith that is dead right it's it's a hylomorphism of religion. It says like these two things are actually okay. Yes, it's true that the the kind of spirit, the animating spirit of belief, is this internally held conviction. These propositions: I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. These sorts of things. Um, but if you talk that way and you don't act that way, mm. then like the faith has, you know you, nobody can look into your heart and know what what the faith is it's it's immaterial it's, it doesn't exist in in any like tangible way and so the tangible thing that we sort of see is the fruit that it bears by your fruits you you shall know them and so this everything in the world kind of has these these two aspects to it right is like you know there's the thing that you could never write down or touch or encapsulate in matter and then there's the thing that we access through the matter which is yes. actually the reason that everything else is there in the first place Right. Uh, Jamie, did you find that answer for me? Tampax sent him a box of tampons to, quote, give to women in need. <laughs> okay, I just wanted to bring the level of this perspective. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. That, was, okay. that was really so, moving. Funny I, <laughs> um, I, so I have, first of all, I am in full agreement with this idea of hylomorphism at multiple levels of analysis. This is actually something that even Jordan Peterson talks mm -hmm. about quite frequently that we observe the world and then in a way we observe ourselves as function more than object mm. that that we see a cup and it it resonates in our brain because it's something that can store fluid or something that we can drink out of that you see this you know ergonomic computer chair that i'm sitting in and a stump in the forest it highlights the same part of your brain because you go that's something that i can rest on mm. if i need to rest and so when when we even at the very base level we navigate through the world in a way that that infuses physical objects with their purpose right mm -hmm. and so taking that to the the spiritual level even christ himself when he was teaching us how to pray said that our our prayer should be that god's kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven this idea like you were mentioning this golden thread that runs through our story this idea that we have to bifurcate the here and now versus the hereafter is not only in conflict with our own experiential reality but it's in conflict with the scripture itself mm. So I have a question, but I do have a question about that because I, and I have this question. I have my own answers to this question. I just want to know what you think uh, because we, I've been having a discussion about this with one of, one of my friends. What happens then to our hylomorphic body spirit situation when we die? Mm -hmm. uh, I've got, I've got thoughts. I just want to hear yeah, when you started talking about this, in the book, I was like, oh, great. I'd, I've got to talk to him about this because I've just been having this conversation. Totally. So um, I'm going to stipulate at the outset, as, as I always like to do, that these questions are above my pay grade. Um, <laughs> and they're above everybody's pay grade. Yes, and if anybody right. tells you that they're not, then he's like selling you a, a bill of goods. So I, Unless they're dead. Then right. 
but then you've got more problems. But then, right, there's bigger issues. Right, I mean, like, and, and you know, obviously I'm now going to pronounce authoritatively as if I know anything about this, but I, you know, um, just wanted to say, like, this is um, one of the great mysteries. And one of the tricks, now I'm really on a tangent, but one of the tricks that a materialist or a sort of anti-theologian will say, an atheist will say about this is like, well, you can't explain this. Like, it's just kind of mumbo-jumbo because you can't really give a concrete answer. It's like, yeah, but you don't even acknowledge the question. Like, you don't even have, yes, right. uh, there's, you don't have no answers either. So it's like nobody's got any, like, definite answers to these sorts of questions. But the church has come up with some very good sort of basic outlines based on what's in scripture and kind of what we know. And this is one of the places where in the work of Thomas Aquinas, like Aristotelian philosophy informs Christian theology to a very beautiful degree. And and Aquinas is kind of working out since Aristotle was a pagan and, and since um, Aquinas was committed to belief in the bodily resurrection, like Aquinas is sort of working out, like since there was this truth in Aristotle, what can we know like based on what is revealed to us? Um, and so I'll start with Aquinas' answer is in outline as I understand it, and I think it's a pretty good one. And that is that the soul at, at the end of the life of this body the soul essentially essentially um can no longer develop or change its orientation because it has no more more contact with the kind of like world of change which is the world of, of the physical and so it's like a um a clay pot being dumped into boiling water or, or something that like it suddenly frozen in its in its orientation and then it is just a sort of a soul like an eternal purely spiritual entity where does it go well it goes to heaven or hell to await resurrection and that like at resurrection the, the soul is then clothed again in in flesh and that new body reflects the shape that the soul has taken within your old body so it's not that your new body looks anything like your old body it's that your old body is a vehicle for your soul to take the shape that it will take when it is embodied in the world um, and as for what it looks like or quote-unquote is like for the soul to occupy some location when it is no longer enfleshed um, the only answers that you can give to those sorts of questions are poetic and the best poetic answer is in Dante's uh, purgatorio so in purgatory um dante has his pilgrim his representative of himself sort of asked like i'm talking to all of these souls and i'm seeing them and talking to them but they have no bodies and i i uh, can't exactly remember who says this to him but one of the kind of authorities that he encounters says it's sort of like a spirit that now or a wind that moves through the trees it's like the surrounding environment is now moved by this soul even though the soul has no physical body you can sort of see it in outline in the influence that it has on the sound waves and on the on the kind of material around you so it becomes basically a um like a wind or a breath right that it sort of has these visible effects on the material world without itself being anywhere tangible in matter which indeed is already it's it's situation right like the soul already yes is sort of a um is, is manifest in the material world through its effect on matter it just so happens that that effect is circumscribed by and kind of threaded through into the body that you currently exist in so i guess a disembodied soul would would be that without the body right it would be like the effect of the soul on the the physical world and that then the body would be it would be reclothed in the body at the resurrection um right but that's you know 
it's like uh, he pays your money and he takes your choice. Your mileage may vary. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 that's a great answer. <laughs> it's a great answer for for multiple reasons. One, I think it's I think it's true to the biblical corpus, mm. which is probably the most important part of of an answer on matters such as that. Uh, in that, we know that we can be absent from this body. That's very clear in Scripture, and we know that there's there's a new body, whatever that means at the, at the resurrection. Although revelation is uh, murky as a, a eternal understatement. <laughs> but in addition to that, you also highlighted the importance of the physical. Now mm. uh, Hebrews does a wonderful job at this, especially when it's talking about Yom Kippur and how Christ is this, this perfect representation of the day of atonement mm. that just as the priest would shed blood to purify the copies of the heavenly places that Christ shed his blood to to purify those those true heavenly places things not made with human hands mm. it's this idea that the physical that we live in now is is on the one hand sustained and called into being by the spirit but simultaneously it is it is indistinguishable from it in certain regards and it is that how we interact with the spiritual world in the here and now you cannot interact with the spiritual world without bringing your body with mm. you until you die you know what i'm saying and, and you mentioned in your answer that it the the form that you are in is what allows you to change and sculpt yourself um into the shape that you will potentially eternal be or in a certain sense, in a, in a pure, perfect sense, to shape yourself like Christ, um, to continue to conform to his image. Okay. Yeah, right? yeah. That, Sorry, that's, so you, you can't divorce the importance of the physical, mm. but you also, have, you also know that it's a, it's a shadow of the eternal, which one day you'll be conjoined to. So anyway, um, thanks for that. Oh, yeah. No, I mean... Um, there's so much here we could spend we could do a, another podcast on sort of all of this. Um, <laughs> right. I'm I'm pouring myself a glass of whiskey because one should drink when one talks about these sorts of things. Um, but uh, I, um, yeah, I, I think often in this context of a section in Milton's Paradise Lost, I think it's book two, and somebody can check me on that or tell me I'm wrong. But Satan, after his expulsion from heaven having rebelled against God, surveys the heavenly spheres and makes his way back from hell to earth to, to see kind of what God is doing in, in earth. Because the whole rebellion is occasioned by the news of God's intention for man, that the exalted place that this dust will take in, his, in the hierarchy of his creation. Um, because, of course, th this is a miraculous thing that we alone, right, are entrusted with the... Um, it is a kind of holy priesthood, right, to draw matter up toward spirit. And we are exactly the inflection point at which that becomes. It comes back right back to what we were saying about Genesis and quantum physics, right? That if if matter is kind of indeterminacy, is tohu vabohu, is like, you know, formless and void. If matter is just stuff and it's defined in some sense by the absence of God's kind of creative spirit or it's defined by you know it's, it's it's what god makes as distinguished from him um then mankind's role is to draw that whole 
big parcel of stuff up into communion with with spirit and to infuse it with spirit and that's what we are we're the we're the hinge point between between kind of emptiness formlessness and and form and, and spirit and milton as he describes satan coming to look at uh, earth describes earth as this pendant world hung on a golden chain that it's pendant being being hanging you know down kind of on this almost invisible this incredibly thin filament of gold that hangs us between heaven and hell and in order in some sense for us to occupy that position we have to be liable to change because we have to exert the imperatives of heaven upon the world that's our stewardship of, of creation and it therefore follows that we will be vulnerable to the world, right? It's sort of similar to what we were talking about going out. You know, you have to engage with the world in order to evangelize. Well, that means that you're going to be vulnerable also to the world. You have to have confidence that your influence on it is going to be more positive than its influence on you is going to be negative. And it's like that's the whole project. And in order to do that, you have to actually accept that task, that charge of living at the, at the hinge of heaven and hell. Um, which is which is basically the definition in some sense of, of what we are. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's it's of course, like you said, this is this is a decades long topic, not an hours long topic. <laughs> right, 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 right. It's it's uh it's the same. It, it's why it's so beautiful that in Genesis that the first sin was the knowledge of good and evil. Yeah. Hmm. Because for evil to be actualized in the world, we had to have knowledge of it. So of course, that's the first rule that you have to break. Hmm. And it, it's it, the idea that savages, you know, five thousand years ago came up with this <laughs> idea of their own is it requires more faith than than me believing in space, daddy. But the <laughs> the um that beautiful idea that we sit at the hinge of heaven and hell it's what separates us from the angels it's what it's what separates us from michael and lucifer is that we've got this we have the ability to act as an operator with the knowledge of good and evil in this world in a certain sense that we've got that that we've been given by god the ability to act as an agent mm. instead of to be acted upon and that required the physical at, at least as far as we know and it's it's a it's a perfect solution to the problem of am i just a a series of inputs and outputs mm. am i just material as a material in a materialist wor worldview or am i an agent and like like you said that it's a question that's been answered long ago i'm sure to the chagrin mm -hmm. of many a scientist but uh i one, it's a beautiful set of ideas. It's a, the Bible is only boring if you don't really look into it. <laughs> but once you start to dive in, it, it is the most interesting book in the world, other than yours. I'm <laughs> <just kidding. laughs> no, no. Even um, I, I'm not going to have my... It was Lennon or McCartney who said we're bigger than Jesus. Like, I am, yeah. <laughs> refuse to be, uh, to be pegged on that. But I... Um, no, I think, like, um, there is so much that is rich in this. And it does come back to what we were talking about evangelism earlier. It's like we've now taken this grand and glorious detour through like quantum yes. physics and transgenderism and the, the body. And it's like and, and now we are able, I think, to talk about scripture in a way that does justice to its richness yes. because we're not requiring of it that it deliver prepackaged some kind of picture of the world on our terms i mean one of the big mistakes we make when we talk about whether the bible is true is we only accept a kind of truth that 
the that is prescribed for us by modern science and we don't even understand or realize quite that we're doing it because science has so effectively threaded its way into the crevices of our brains but if it's the case that some portion of the bible describes the world in anything other than a you know physically literal sense anything other than like this guy went here and did that and that's true right then we're afraid that that means it's not true and so we we tie ourselves in knots trying to prove that the bible is true in that specific way but it's science that tells us that that's the only kind of truth right it's not the bible scripture doesn't tell us that scripture in fact represents itself as a melange of genres as having all sorts of kinds of communication in it and when you write something in a poem you don't write it the same way as when you write it in a scientific report and we're only asking for the kind of scientific report kind of truth because we've basically bought into the idea that that's the only kind of truth there is right. and and it's like this um this is a great error i think in the way that we engage the text be precisely because yeah it shuts us off from from the richness of it mm. and and from just the level of like another great saint augustine moment that i cherish is when he's conducting a review of his physical pleasures because he's succeeded in giving up sex which was his great sort of challenge and obstacle to the holy life and he says you know and good work i mean <laughs> yeah like, honestly <laughs> a work surely of the holy spirit alone right but like you know um he's like and he depicts this as a great release right that he he falls into the arms of chastity she in, she ushers him like away from his life which he obviously isn't happy with in some profound way it's like an alcoholic who knows that what he's doing is wrong and bad and is hurting him but he he can't get out of it and and you know god kind of gives him this way out and then he says like okay so now i have to deal with all these other sort of am i indulging too much in music too much in food and drink and all these things and when he comes to food, he says, you know, I wish I could apply to this the same solution that I applied to sex. That is, I wish I could just give it up. Because if I didn't have to eat to survive, then I wouldn't need to calibrate my temptations against my need for survival and my genuine sort of dependence on this stuff for existence. But God has seen fit to make me dependent on it so that I would have to mediate that problem and i think that right there is this beautiful simple encapsulation of the whole thing we're talking about it's like it would be easier actually to retreat into this purely sort of spiritualized space where yes. the world doesn't matter and the world has everything wrong because then we wouldn't have to suffer the danger of exerting an influence on the world engaging with the world and being ourselves very flawed and broken and liable to temptation like to, to risk getting it wrong and to risk being swayed, overly swayed by kind of fashionable theories. And and this is like, it would be great if we could do that, but that is not the role that God has put us in. Like God has actually um, challenged us with a far more daring mission brief, which is to like enter into matter itself and draw it up yes. towards spirit, right? Like draw flesh towards but spirit. That's that, exactly. It's why to live is Christ and to die is mm. gain. And by the way, that's why Christ became flesh, mm. mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like it, he had to, he had to embody that moment on the cross where the cosmos touched the the two the two elements of the spiritual and and the material are connected inextricably at that one point because he he was that perfect that perfect 
priest, let's mm-hmm, say, mm-hmm. connecting connecting us to to the heavenly realm. I mean, it's it's a it's a beautiful picture. And I, I just wanted to I, I wanted to say you mentioned during that answer that the idea that the material was the only proper way to to search for truth affected the way that we viewed the the biblical text. I totally agree. Mm-hmm. I, in addition to that, I think it actually it affects the way that we we look at science itself. I think it actually clogs the portal to knowledge of the material mm-hmm. world because if you if go going way back to the beginning of our discussion but if the the word at the beginning of time is the the progenitor of reality as such the study of science isn't strictly simply the study of the material world i mean it is a way of studying i i hope without putting too fine a point on it but the word of god Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. D- almost directly because it was his word that spoke things into reality and, and we can study the empirical uh, the empirical and derive the spiritual and as we've discussed at several different points during this talk when we want to study the empirical while denying the the non-material mm-hmm. we develop all these types of solutions and answers like multiverse theory like like schrodinger was dealing with that don't actually move us into a more not just un, just not just a more enlightened direction but not even a more knowledgeable direction mm. it just it, it's at odds with our experiential reality and so i think that the the theological problem is like standing in the middle of the street and getting hit by cars coming from both directions we both damage our ability to manage tasks of the spirit and questions of the spirit and we also impede our ability to to determine truths and facts of our own reality so that's such a good point and it bears repeating that many of the great minds of the scientific revolution were exactly of this cast it's not as if we're now like making up some <laughs> paradigm you know we didn't invent this right. way of thinking about science wait a minute no hold on we oh are. i'm sorry nobody <laughs> has to ever, have ever thought of this thought of this before it, yeah. we're geniuses slap a nobel prize geniuses. on it export immediately yeah. discovery.exe there it is yeah the Clavin carl <laughs> theory of science but i mean no like you know newton was Certainly an unorthodox Christian, but a, a Christian until the day he died. Uh, Galileo was, had, had no interest in sort of debunking God. Right. He was interested in God's creation as, uh, and in the kind of magnificent evidence that we have all around us of its, of its rationale, without which we can't have any confidence that science will work at all. I mean, the mm. most kind of remarkable yes. evidence for the theists of the scientific revolution, if you want to put it that way, the most remarkable evidence of God's providence and care is that this thing called math describes the world, right? And since math is purely an occupant of the human mind, since Mm. number exists nowhere in the material world but only describes it, the fact that you're able to write an equation which gives accurate predictions of the behavior of matter was for many scientific thinkers the sublime the the consummate proof that the world was designed and ordered by another mind that our sort of small human mind was finding cosmic answer in the divine mind and that's why science and math works 
at all. Without that conviction, why should we expect that our rocket ships should launch at the time prescribed by the formulas? Like, there's no, right. there's no reason for that. I mean, Kepler, of course, was the great uh, expositor of this view of things. He was maybe the most sort of impassioned scientist theologian of his day, and he talks about, you know, I'm just thinking God's thoughts after him. There's a there's a wonderful book about Kepler that just came out called Thinking God's Thoughts. And it's just all about this this way of approaching the world that defined the scientific revolution. And it's really not until like, you know, Pierre Simon Laplace, it's always the French, those Frenchies get it wrong, you know, every time. But uh, it's Laplace who's, you know, the kind of, he's more Newtonian than Newton. And he comes along to argue that basically everything can be described in these mathematical formula. And famously, the anecdote is that when Napoleon is uh, sort of interrogating him, Laplace was one of Napoleon's uh, examiners at the École Militaire, at the, at the military school. And so they knew each other. And when Napoleon came to power, he sort of toyed with giving Laplace some, you know, administrative post. But he called Laplace before him and said, I find God nowhere in your book and he says i have no need of that hypothesis i don't need to, to refer to god to account for anything and it's like that's only because you're looking so you're so in, enfolded in the structure of the world that god built and you're looking kind of in that and it's like you know where does god exist well he's behind in in, in everything that you're saying implied by everything that you're saying uh, and we just lost sight of that somewhere mm. mm -hmm. the french mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's always them. Je, je parle, je parle. Ah ouais. Okay. Et moi aussi. Nous, pour mes nous ne trouvons, trouvons pas Dieu parce que nous ne cherchons. I think. Um, <laughs> it's a good attempt. But we'll give it that. It's a, we don't we don't uh, find God because we're not looking. Um, so anyway, uh, I've got a couple more questions cool. and none of them are important. Hunter, did you have something before we change gears uh, here? No. All right. So, everybody's asking, the world needs to know, Spencer, in the book, you bring up both Resident Evil <laughs> on VR, as well as Call of Duty. Is Spencer Clavin a gamer? Oh, dude. Is Spencer Clavin a gamer? Spencer Clavin is an OG gamer. I can't believe, I can't yes. believe this isn't manifest. And I should have I should have made it more clear just by having a whole section. No, I mean like this is one of the areas where like I think you know you don't want to get too 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 doomery about tech because there's amazing stuff going on. There's mm. beautiful visual art being made in, in yeah. the sphere of video games. I'm currently working my way laboriously through the new God of War. Laboriously only because I have almost no time anymore to play. <laughs> right. But I'm like I'm up to the whole part with. Angerboda and the, uh, when when um, Atreus slash Loki turns into a bear, but yeah, uh, yeah. no, I'm I'm very I'm a big fan. My dad and I play video games all okay. through my childhood together. Well, I was about to say, if you are a gamer, then how painful was it to watch your dad play Elden Ring? <laughs> <laughs> I averted my eyes. I, you know, you know they say, what is it? It's Noah's sons, right? That you're not supposed to look upon your father. Yes. Yes. It's. I think that's uh, that was the. <laughs> that I walked into watch. the room. You walked into the room yeah. backwards and and held the blanket exactly. and covered the monitor. That's smart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was hilarious. That was one of my favorite my favorite things. But I he's watched. good for an old uh, guy. He's good at games. I have to. I I got to give him this because I gave him hell all through my high school years i was like dad like you suck because we would pass the controller off and i would like make some progress right. and he would like die immediately and he was like had a really good <laughs> like sense of humor about it but i being like an 
idiot teenager was like, Dad, like, you're messing up the flow of the game. Anyway, this is a digression. <laughs> okay, all right, that's yeah. good. And my last stupid question, you mentioned Polybius in mm. the book. And, of course, Polybius, I'm skipping a ton here, but he came up with the rise and fall of systems of government, which is kind of the protozoic form of the thing that most people are familiar with is weak men, bad times, mm-hmm. strong men, good times, kind of that continuum. He goes into a lot more detail yep. between democracies and oligarchies and, and uh, monarchies and their shadow selves and all that kind of fun stuff. Yep. But when you mention Polybius, the only thing I can think of is the arcade cabinet. Yeah. Are you, have you played no, it? Never Just kidding. It's not real, but, uh, okay. but I know what you're talking. It's like a, it's like one of those classic internet, like internet 1.0. Yeah. Urban, urban myth that it, it makes you go insane and the CIA comes and picks you up. Yeah. 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 It's like pizza gate. Well, I, but, uh, here's one thing I will say, not that pizza gate isn't real, but, um, <laughs> the, uh, I will say that, that um, that, uh, hard men create, Bad time. No, no, no. I say this again. Bad yeah. men create hard times. <laughs> That's a Freudian that slip. Freudian slip yeah. Yeah. Just roll right over. Uh, <laughs> there is a there is a like sort of dirty version of it that that uses that. So it's probably what I was thinking. Hard like men, a, good a hard times. men create good I'm times. Sure yeah, yeah. I'm but close. bad men. Okay, okay, uh, okay. okay. Uh, I'm gonna get this right. I promise. And it's not because I it's not because I took a sip of whiskey earlier. It's um, <laughs> it's <laughs> hard times uh, create. Tough men, tough men create good times, good times create weak men, weak men create bad times. And then it, the cycle begins again. Um, I quoted that in the book because it's such a perfect summation of what the ancient Greek kind of theory it, it would call anacyclosis, right? That it's the cycle of regimes, and that's all throughout the book. It's a quote from this guy, G. Michael Hopf, who writes these great uh, novels. And Hopf read How to Save the West— and found me on Instagram, and we're like buddies now. So not to boast wow. or whatever, oh, but cool. like, yeah, because he like I was like, your books are so awesome, and you like wrote this great submission. He was like, yeah, apparently somebody sent it to him because he's quoted in it. So now we're pals. How cool is that? Oh man, what a good yeah. story. Well, let's end let's end the show in the same way that you ended the book, only with less less wordsmithing and. and creative flair and just our simple adage I, I love the way that you ended the book we, I, we listened to it twice on the audio version huh. when when we were on our, our way home from our, our trip this weekend but the the goal is what do you do given the problems that the West face it's to it's to tell the truth mm-hmm. and you can tell the truth in a multiplicity of ways you can tell the truth by being honest with yourself about your purpose, by enacting and acting in a way that that mirrors the truth, that that supports the truth, not lying about who you are or where you're at or what your purpose here is, even implicitly by the decisions that you make. It's the way we end a bunch of our episodes and uh, our, our call to our listeners here. Go buy the book. Buy How to Save the West, Ancient Wisdom from Five Modern Crises. Read Spencer Clavin's work. It was phenomenal. And and tell the truth at whatever level of analysis you can tell the truth. So, Spencer, anything to leave the audience with? Wow. I couldn't have said it better myself. The distillation of the book that I've been giving to people is log off and go to church. And <laughs> okay, I think if you want too. a brief, like 200-page exhortation to do that and why the great minds of the past might encourage and support you in that, mm-hmm. um, I hope you will check out the book. 
it is as you have mentioned available on audio in audiobook format and i did read it myself so if that's your jam if you like listening to things and you probably do because here you are go check that out as as well but thank you i basically all i want to say is thank you guys this has been such a blast thanks for having me Oh, man, our pleasure. The the pleasure, yeah, is certainly ours. And we're going to have links to Spencer's socials as well as places where you can purchase the book in whatever format you desire in the show notes. So make sure to grab those. Check out our sponsors. You can go to our store and see our affiliate, or our store is is carpoint.com slash store while you're there check out our affiliates page that's currently being updated we've got plenty of good sponsors that can get you hooked up with deals on everything from coffee to mattresses to when you need to wake up and when you need to lie down we we're a total 24 7 care service here at carl <laughs> pulling and thanks again spencer this has been absolutely brilliant thanks so much for joining us if you are a quanta and you see yourself acting as a wave particle instead of as a a material particle all you need to do is to interact with some type of measurement device so that you can collapse into a definite path after being observed what i mean to say is that if you'd like to bring yourself into being into one central core function if you are a quanta all you need to do is get tested So the tagline is get tested and that elaborate, amazing, amazing.